Welcome to Foothills Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Doug Peak. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit foothills.org. Welcome everyone to Foothills Christian Church. We're starting a brand new series today called The New Normal. And one of the great things about this little introductions, you know, I always get to practice a few dance moves. So all of you at home, you don't get to see that, but everybody here on campus, that's just an extra little treat for all of you who come out to brave the COVID conundrum. So we're glad you're here. And uh, please, I hope you're not scarred by those uh, attempts at dancing. So this year has just been so crazy, hasn't it? I mean, it's just been like the absolute nuttiest year. We were going into this year and everything was like new plans, new things. I remember back in January talking about, you know, people got really big plans for 2020. And then I don't know what happened, but 2020 was just a disaster. And it just seems to be a rolling, ongoing disaster. But like any crisis, you always get good memes out of it. So here's some of my favorite memes about 2020. Here, everybody, 2019 thought it was, hey, I'm king of the world, right? Well, there's the iceberg, the Titanic hit. It's just going off the cliff. Here's another one that I like that I thought was pretty funny, and that is uh, I was going to go all over the world with Pastor Harv, right, and True Hope Travel. And this is the... Uh, the Opera House in Sydney. This is like one of the architectural wonders of the world. And this is how it actually ended up. You know, all I'm doing is looking at plates in my dishwasher. So, so much for that. Uh, here, here's one I like, you know, uh, this is uh, the Walking Dead guy, you know, and here he is. His list is milk, eggs, bread, toilet paper, and sanitizer. You got to go armed with your AR-15 just to get toilet paper nowadays. So here's, here's a really good one, man. If 2020 was a slide, yeah, just get that image in your head, right? Boy, that's going to stick with you. It's like, so what happened at church today? You would not believe the image I have in my head. So, but actually 2020 was taken over by somebody else. If you're not a Harry Potter fan, you won't get it. But if you are a Harry Potter fan, we've been taken over by Dolores Umbridge and she's in charge of 2020. What a mess that is. You know, uh, memes always get us to laugh at a crisis, but I was talking to a guy, and he's married. He has three kids on school, and what he was uh, telling me about was, you know, when this thing hit back in March and they canceled school, you know, the kids came home. I'm working. My wife is working. My my business sent me, a company sent me home, and so they sent my wife home. And so, well, you know what we thought we'd do is we're going to tag team our kids, and we're not going to let their education slow down. It's just going to keep zooming forward. It's just going to, we're going to do all this kind of stuff. He goes, but then it just kept dragging on. And then I got furloughed from my job and then they brought me back. And then, you know, it's just all this craziness going on. And, and he said, you know, everything I'd planned to do, I ended up not being able to do, you know, our kids, you know, weren't able to keep their education going and we weren't able to travel. We weren't able to really uh, have any fun. And so he goes, you know, I, my wife is now dealing with some anxiety and he goes, I'm just kind of bummed. I just lost all my motivation. And then he finished telling his story this way. He said, you know what? I didn't realize how all of these external things were so important for me to keep going and functioning well. He says, you know what? I had good intentions, but they fell to the wayside. I guess I'm a victim of circumstance, and I don't like that. 
Well, that got me thinking, is it something that the Bible teaches a lot about, and it's something that we need to talk about, and that is what happens when there's really rapid change that just upsets our life. And I want to give you a little axiom, which means it's a truth across the board for everybody, and it's this. Rapid change always brings rapid loss, right? So the more rapid the change, the bigger the change, the more intense the loss is, the more intense it will be. And no matter what, if it's a small loss or a big loss, you will always experience pain. So just think for a moment. If it's rapid change, it's really big change, then my loss is rapid and big. Therefore, the pain in my life is going to be just as big. Now, what that does is that results in a way that we respond, right? Whenever there's big change and there's pain and loss, we respond to it in a certain way. And one of the ways we do that, I think, is we act like this is a hurricane or a giant snowstorm. And at first it was, hey, you know what we're going to do is it's going to come in, it's going to wreak havoc, and then we're just going to, it's going to blow over, and then we're going to rebuild, and we're going to go back to normal But who would have thought five months later, we don't even know if school's going to start? And how, how, what is normal? And so, one of the things that we do if we fall into this wait and see mentality is that we can become uh, adopters of an attitude that ultimately is very destructive. And that attitude is passivity. You see, passivity is not an emotional state. Passivity is an orientation in how you look at life. It is a way or a method of approaching life. And passivity over a long term can have really detrimental effects on your life. Now, why does it have such detrimental effects? Well, because since it's an orientation or a way of looking at life, when you're passive and life is playing out, you tend to wait back and not do anything. And so what it does is it really becomes destructive in your relationships. For instance, if you're married, you know when you're first married, you know how you kind of really invest in your marriage, you're excited, and all of the dating and the engagement and the first few years is just wonderful, wonderful. But after five years or eight years and kids come along and all that stress, what happens is that you can subconsciously fall into a passive approach to your marriage relationship. And what that means is you're not working on it. You're not investing in it. You're not growing it. You're not making it healthier and stronger. You're kind of taking it for granted. That's never good. And that's how passivity can be destructive. You know, passivity can be destructive in your family. Um, If you uh, are not constantly at every stage of development investing disciplining, coaching, working on how to be a better parent, and you're just kind of passively letting your kids grow up, that ultimately is destructive. And the reason why is because passivity doesn't really achieve anything. It lets all the external forces out there dictate the agenda. That's never good in your family. 
Just think about business and your career. Think about that for a little bit. Think about um, if you uh, start off your career and you're growing and you're taking on more responsibility, but then you just get to that point, maybe 20 years in or whatever, where you kind of just put it on cruise control and you're, you're, it's like, oh, I don't really care anymore. Is that good for your career? Is that good for business? No, it's not. See, passivity is destructive across the board. And what it does is it results in behaviors or attitudes that we have. And you know what they are? The first one is this, is when you're married and then you kind of fall into passivity in the way you address your marriage, guess what? Blame goes up. Because there's a lack of discipline, because there's no investment, there's always pointing fingers. It's like, I'm, I'm unhappy and it's your fault. It's the same way with kids. You know, if you're not involved and you're not on your game and you're trying to be the best parent you can, it's really easy to get blame oriented. You know, taking responsibility for your life is one of the most important steps in becoming a mature and wise adult, is learning how to take responsibility for what you can take responsibility for. This is super important to maturity, to wisdom, to success across the board. Well, guess what? Passivity robs you of that opportunity. It takes it away. It, it takes away every opportunity for you to grow. But most importantly, passivity undermines your faith. And this is how it works. It's that, okay, when I first became a uh, 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 into a relationship with Jesus, I first got to know God, I was really excited. You know, I'm reading, I'm praying, I'm saying, God, what about this? Or, you know, I'm actively, I'm serving, I'm doing ministry in his name, I'm doing all this stuff. But over time, you know, maybe some bad things happen, changes come along, you kind of just stop doing all that stuff. And so what happens is you subconsciously fall into a passive orientation with God. And that is, well, God, if my faith's going to grow, it's up to you to grow it. Well, God, you know, I've got a problem, God, would you solve it for me? Oh, God, you know what? Um, you know, you're in charge. So I'm just not going to care, worry about it. The difficulty with that is, is when God doesn't follow through or according to your expectation, what happens? It's hard. It's like, well, maybe he doesn't love me or maybe he doesn't care about me. What you don't realize is that in the situation of relational faith with Jesus Christ, you've adopted a passive orientation. And what that does is that undermines your trust in God. The other thing it does is it causes you to have a lack of action. And that is, I'm just not actively doing stuff anymore. And so I think that, well, my relationship with God is just going to stay the same. My faith is going to stay the same, even though I don't invest in it. I'm not involved in a community of faith, a church. I'm not involved in a small group for accountability. I'm not reading. I'm not praying. I'm not doing any of these things. You know, it's kind of like, I would say, uh, for a while, my approach to staying in shape. You know, when I hit 35, I was in great shape. And I just thought, man, I'm going to be in great shape forever. And then suddenly I turned 40. And what happened? I couldn't do what I did when I was 35. And I'm like, man, what happened? Well, if you don't work out, if you don't stay engaged and involved in it, what happens? It atrophies. And so many people have an atrophied faith because they subconsciously fell into passivity orientation. And that's sad. That's heartbreaking. So what can we do about it? How do we not let this pandemic, this change, all this stuff lead us or trick us or tempt us into being passive about our future, about our life, about our faith? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to tell and study 
the story of a family in the Old Testament. This is the story of Joseph. And the story of Joseph is found in Genesis chapter 37 through 45. Joseph is a part of what I call the OF, the original family, all right? And people are like, well, why are they the original family? Well, I'll tell you why, because this family has had a bigger influence and impact on the world today than you could ever imagine. You see, Abraham was the 10th generation removed from Noah, okay? So Noah on the ark, three sons, one of them Shem. Well, nine generations down through Shem is Abraham. Well, Abraham is married to Sarah, and God says, hey, you need to leave Ur, which is like on the Persian Gulf, modern-day Kuwait, and I want you to travel up the Fertile Crescent, so the Tigris-Euphrates rivers, all the way up into almost Turkey, and then come down the coast into what is today modern-day Israel, and I want you to start a great nation there. And this happens, you're introduced in Genesis 11 and 12 to all of this stuff, right? Well, Abraham has two sons. The first son is by a maidservant, Hagar, and he names him Ishmael. And all Muslims today track their ancestry back to Father Abraham through Ishmael. Then, 12 years after Ishmael is born, is Isaac. And all Jewish people track their heritage back to Father Abraham through Isaac. So all of this turmoil, even in the world today, between these two groups, is really just an old family feud. That's kind of interesting when you think about it. I mean, this was over 4,000 years ago. Well, Isaac had two boys, and the family feud did not end with them, as Jacob and Esau. And Jacob deceives his older brother out of his birthright and then takes off. And Jacob, right, ends up marrying four women, and we'll talk about that in a second, and he has a whole boatload of kids, all boys. And in that group is Joseph. And so we're going to study his life, okay? So my challenge for you is as a church is that whenever we do anything, I would love for you to just read Joseph 30, uh, Genesis chapter 37 through 45. It's eight chapters, takes you about 15, 20 minutes. So over the next six weeks, just read it once or twice a week. Just sit down and read it real quick. And every time you read it, you're going to get a little more out of it. And it's going to become more clear to you over time. So I'll just give you an overview of how Joseph's life starts, and then we're going to dig into just some general principles. Now, whenever we're introducing a series, we want to just give you a brief overview and help you get started, okay? Don't forget, on our app, our phone app, where you can get it uh, in, on the Android and on your Apple device, you can go... F.H. Boise or Foothills Boise, and you can get all the notes from today's message, all the passages of scripture, and fill in the blanks right there. So let's begin. I want to tell you the story of Joseph. It begins in verse 1, and as you see here, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, and that you'll notice that later, 
He lived in a land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan, okay? This is the account of his family. Joseph, so it's interesting, it starts with the 11th son. He was a young man of 17 years of age, and he was tending flocks with his brothers. So he has a total of 11 brothers, okay? And these 11 brothers came from four moms. Now, what happened is Jacob went to work for his uncle, and his uncle had a a girl named Rachel, and he says, man, she is so hot. I got to marry this girl. So he goes, and he meets with his uncle, and he says, hey, what would it take for me to be able to marry your daughter? He goes, well, since you don't have a dowry for her, you have to work for me for seven years. And so he goes, okay, done deal. So he works for him for seven years and grows his business immensely. Then on his wedding night, he finds out that his uncle kind of deceived him and he ended up marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah. I feel so bad for Leah. You know, I mean, that poor gal. Well, Leah came and then she had a bonded maidservant, meaning a best friend, a girl that was rescued, became a part of her family, adopted into the family, but they were packaged deals. So it was uh, Leah and Bilhah, and then it was Rachel and Zilpah, same type of thing. And so what happens, he works another seven years and he marries Rachel. So he's there for 14, 15 years, then he comes back to the land of Canaan. While he's there, he ends up from Leah, Zilpah, and Bilhah having 10 kids. And then the love of his life, which was Rachel, finally gets pregnant with Joseph, number 11, and then Benjamin, number 12. And the sad part is, is that when Benjamin was born, she died in childbirth. So his heart was broken, okay? So you can see that this family has some issues already. And what he says is that he was working with his brothers as he should be in the family business, sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah and his father's wives, which were Rachel and Leah. He says, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So he's 17, he's one of the youngest, and he kind of brings a bad report, okay? So that's not such a good thing. Well, let's go on and see why it just gets a little bit worse, okay? In verses... uh, the next three and following, his dad gives him a robe that's very expensive. Now, Israel, so Jacob's name is changed to Israel, and that's where the nation of Israel gets its name, it's from Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. Wow, so he's 17, he's already a little bit, you know, in contention with all of his brothers, and what does dad do? Well, his dad plays favorites and gives him this ornate robe. And then the next thing is because of that, it creates a lot of bitterness in the family. If you look at verse four, you'll see how all this really did not go well with the brothers. Verse four says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, They hated him, and they could not even speak a kind word to him. Now, if you're filling in the blank, it would be this created bitterness in the family, okay? Now, if we move on, it gets even worse 
because Joseph starts to have dreams, and these dreams create more problems. Because in verses 5 through 11, the dreams that Joseph shares basically are, you know, I had this dream, and one day you guys are all going to bow down to me. (laughs) Okay, that's really not a good thing. We're just throwing kind of gas on these flames. And in verse 11, it says, his brothers were jealous of him but his father kept the matter in his mind. Now, because this was playing out, his dad makes another decision that doesn't make anything better is he sends his brothers out to work, but you know what he does? He keeps Joseph back. In Genesis chapter 12 through 17, we see that Joseph was not working with his brothers And 12 says, now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flock near Shechem. This was about 50 miles away. So these were massive flocks, massive stuff going on. And so Joseph is not sent out. But later on in verse 14, you see dad, Israel, also named Jacob, says to him, now it's time for you to go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. So when he initially brought word back, what kind of word did he bring? A negative report. So here these guys are, they're way out working really, really hard, and suddenly who comes along? They see off in the distance, but Joseph in his ornate robe, right? So here he comes. So the brothers have a plot to kill him. And this is verses 18 through 35. It shows this is how they plan to kill him. 18 says, when they saw him in the distance and before he reached them, they plotted to end his life. Here in America, this is called murder one because it's premeditated, right? They have a plan to do it. But what happened is Reuben, the oldest of all the brothers, he was the firstborn. He's like, well, I don't like this little brat, but I don't want to break my father's heart. So what he does is he talks them out of killing him and they throw him into a pit and strip off his clothes. Well, what they do, and I hope you catch this, is they see a group of Ishmaelites. So these are the descendants of their, uh, if you go back up into uh, Abraham, it was their grandpa's half-brother, all right? And they're from Midian. What happens is it says, when they saw the Midianite merchants come by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern or the pit, and they sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Now, there's a lot of rich stuff in there. I started a new podcast. It drops on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And what we do is we talk about on Tuesdays all the in-depth biblical stuff about the upcoming message. And then on Thursday, we talk about practical application in the world. So it's called The Salty Pastor and I am salty. So if you go to your podcast app and you search The Salty Pastor, look for me, subscribe, and then you can catch these more in-depth study notes. But what happens is in verse 36, we see the ultimate problem here, and that is Joseph is taken by the Midianites to Egypt, and he is bought by Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's 
guard. So that is where Joseph ends up. And what I like to do is I like to kind of just show you the really big changes that this family faced at the very beginning of this story. This is the first chapter that launches the whole story, and here they are. Number one is the brothers went from being all together to jealousy to hatred and ultimately rage where they planned to kill their brother. That's a massive shift, a massive change. The second thing is that Joseph went from favored in an ornate coat, being dad's number one, to a slave. What a transition that was. And then the third one is this, is that uh, Jacob, the father of Joseph, went from satisfied to filled with grief and torment over the loss of his son. And you will see these changes and their implications crop up throughout the entire story. So that's what we're going to do is over the next six weeks, we're going to dig into this and we are going to spend some time really focusing on how these things and the story of this family impact your life today and what we can learn in the process. Now, I'd like to send you out with just two basic things, okay? Two basic things today that kind of are major overarching themes that we're going to dig into. And the first one is this. My attitude about change impacts the effect that change has on me more than anything else. Therefore, your attitude about what's going on in the world right now, in your family, in your work, in school, all across the board, your attitude about it changes the impact in the way it affects you. Charles Wendell has a really famous quote where he talks about when it comes to life and how you deal with life, he says, I am convinced that life in, its, in a nutshell is basically 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you choose to respond to it. So we're gonna dig into what that exactly means, how my attitude about big changes can impact the effect it has on my own life. Now, if you're a real thinker and you like to dig deep, I would encourage you to read a book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He was a psychiatrist. He was Jewish. He was arrested by the Nazis and he was thrown into a concentration camp. And he said, this is not good. However, I do have the opportunity of a lifetime to uh, to, uh, record this experience. So that's what he did. And in this book, what he does is he basically says that Nazis tried to take away all of our choices, everything about us, to break our spirit. But the one thing they could never take away from us was our choice on how to respond to what they were doing. Even in the midst of this great evil, if we could maintain our choice of how we responded to it, then that was hope. And the one thing that people need more than anything else is hope, he he identifies in his book. And that's where meaning comes from. And so if you really want to dig in deep and kind of figure out how to uh, investigate your attitude about how change impacts your life, well, read that book. Now, if you don't like to read really deep books and you want a really, really short book, then read the book, Who Moved My Cheese? Okay? And it's a story about two mice and two human beings. It's a little analogy story about how they get into a maze and they find a boatload of cheese. And so every day they go to their place in the maze and they eat their cheese and eat their cheese. And one day the cheese doesn't show up. 
And so he just talks about how that impacts the humans and the mice. The mice immediately take off and find new cheese, but the human beings sit there and talk about, who took our cheese? I deserve this cheese. Man, I came here every day. I knew the route. I had it down, and now someone took my cheese. Do you think they'll bring the cheese back? Is this the new normal cheese? or do what? It takes them a long time to process the fact that maybe they need to just get out in the maze of life and find some new cheese. And so that's what the book is about. It's very short. You can read it in about 20 minutes, but it's insightful. Now, why would I encourage you to do that? Well, I'd encourage you to do that because as we study the story of Joseph, we are going to focus on some really big things, and that's the sovereignty of God, about trusting God even in difficult times. How do you know if God is actually ultimately uh, maneuvering things in a very general sense towards a specific purpose. We're going to dig into that, and we're going to dig into how we have to deal with all of the evil and all of the influence of Satan in this world while God is moving towards a glorious conclusion to human history. Does that mean that's happening right now or many, many millennia in the future? I don't know. The Bible never tells us a time frame. It's kind of like this is uh, over the years, I like to travel, you know, and whenever I go to some place that I don't know that I'm going to be, I get off the airplane, get my stuff, and I go to the, the car rental counter, right? And what do you do? Is you get your car, I sit in the car, and before I leave the parking lot, I get my destination up on my phone, right? I want to know where I'm going. And I want to know, okay, what's the best route to get there? And I check the traffic reports and I'm doing all this kind of stuff because I don't want to go anywhere until I know what the destination is, you know? But you know, the one time I don't ever do that, there's one time when I never do that. And that's when I travel with Pastor Harv. Because Harv's been everywhere. I mean, he has literally been everywhere. It's like, we're going, I could name some obscure place. Oh yeah, I've been there a few times. <laughs> Like, what's unbelievable? What happens is you get off and he goes, yeah, okay, now here's the secret. Here's the trick. Here's what you need to, here's the inside way. When you know that, it's like totally different. You know, it's kind of like this. It's like getting in the car and a local sits in the car next to you and says, okay, I know Google says this is the ultimate way to get there and this is how you're gonna do it, but I know a secret. And we're gonna get there faster and cheaper and there's a parking space for free when we get there. And you go, well, tell me where we're going. Well, I can't tell you the end destination because you've never seen it, but I have. So I'm gonna tell you what? I'm gonna tell you where to turn and when to turn. And it's, that's kind of how faith works. Passivity says, God, I'm not moving until you tell me the end result. God, I'm not doing anything. I'm not gonna trust you until I see and I can figure out the best way for me to get where you want me to go. And God treats you like he's a local. He says, yeah, it's not gonna work. I'll tell you what, I'm gonna sit in the seat next to you. We're gonna go together and I'm gonna tell you when to turn and when not to turn. And it may seem weird, but guess what? In the end, there's this really sweet parking space. It's free, it's called heaven and it's awesome. My friends, we're gonna dig into all of this stuff. And the way you need to, to really figure out how to deepen your trust in God, you're gonna have to confront your attitude about change. And that means you're gonna have to be completely and utterly honest with yourself. The next thing I wanted to share with you before you go is this, and that is when you face a massive change, what is your strategic process? I really want you to think on this because everybody has a strategic process in the way 
they face and manage change. My question is, do you know what yours is? Are you tired of making the same mistakes or getting the same results in your life? Well, the best thing to do is evaluate your strategic process to your future, to your change that you're facing in your own life. If you want to know a truth, here's one, and that is this. The point where your strategic process kicks in is the point where you have the greatest influence on the direction of your life more than anything else. It's not the actual change that's happening, but how do, am I going to deal with it? What decisions am I going to make? What's my plan and strategy? That is going to influence the direction of your life more than anything else. The other thing that's really important to understand is this, and that is this is where Jesus does his best work. This is where he speaks into your life more than any other time. If you're focused on just the details of a change, then you're focused on the problems. When you're focused on your strategic process to deal with it is when Jesus grows your faith. So here's my final challenge to you. Read Genesis chapter 37 through 45. Come together over the next six weeks as we dig deep into this and discover through Joseph's life how God leads us through change. Let us find where we need to be. Let us push through to a better and brighter tomorrow where Jesus Christ is number one in our lives. And let us discover that no matter how bad things get, we are not people who lack faith and lack trust, but because of our faith and because of our trust in God, we will come up with better answers and we will not be stuck in the old normal, but we will discover a glorious new normal together. Let's let Steve close us out. Thank you for listening to this Sermon of the Week. Video footage of this sermon and others can be found on foothills.org.